Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed and saying, If my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That was Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Mark also records this event in its entirety. He records Jesus' words the same way, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Luke adds that as Jesus prayed, being in anguish, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. After a long road of sorrow, humility, and shame, Jesus was about to endure the greatest anguish any person has ever felt, the anguish of the cross. Why did he go through with it? Why did he do it? Why did Jesus come to die? That's the question we are answering this summer. We're looking at 10 reasons that Jesus came to die. One per Sunday. There are more, but this summer we're just looking at 10. Last week, Chris taught us that Jesus came to die to fulfill the Old Testament. And today I want us to see that Jesus came to die for the joy of his people. Now we must keep this scene in the forefront of our minds this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. If you're not already there, please turn there with me now. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 2, that's going to be our launch pad into many other scriptures this morning, but do not forget the anguish of Gethsemane this morning. To grasp the mountaintop of joy that Jesus has won for his people, we must grasp 
the valley of agony that Jesus endured first. The name of this sermon is Jesus died for the joy of his people. But before we can understand that reality, we must first see that Jesus came to die for his own joy. That's an interesting idea. And as we look at scripture, it's going to become clear what that means. So let's look again at Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're going to focus on verse 2 right now. Hebrews 12 is a helpful commentary on what was happening in Gethsemane. It sits with us in Jesus' agonizing prayers, his sweating blood, and in a phrase encapsulates what Jesus went through. Jesus, in that moment, the scripture is telling us, looked ahead beyond the cross, beyond the painful agony of that moment to the reward that lay just beyond it. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The writer of Hebrews uses this phrase, endured the cross, scorning its shame. That might not mean a whole lot to us right now, but it meant a lot to people in that culture. Jesus' whole life was uh, humbling, it was painful, it was sorrowful, and the cross was the ultimate expression of all those things. It was the the quantum of pain, of of shame. You see, Jesus had entered into a shame-honor culture, and in those kinds of cultures, you pursued those things that brought you honor, and then you also obsessed over the things that brought you shame so that you could avoid them at all costs. And what Jesus does here, according to Hebrews chapter 12, is he looks at the shame of the cross, he scorns it. He despises it. A better translation would be he just kind of whatever's it. He looks at the shame of the cross and counts it as nothing compared to the joy that's on the other side of it. He did it for joy. What was the joy? that was set before Jesus? What exactly was it that Jesus was looking forward to on the other side of the cross? Well, John Piper, in his book, uh, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die, we don't have time this summer to address that many, and there are even more than that, but in his book, he identifies four elements to this joy that was set before Jesus on the other side of the cross. I want us to go through those this morning, just real briefly. First, it was the joy of reunion with his Father. The joy that was set before Jesus on the other side of that cross was reunion with his Father. Scripture tells us that Jesus left the glory of heaven for the humility of earth. He had communed with God the Father through the Holy Spirit while on earth, but Scripture tells us that on the cross, as Jesus endured the punishment for the sins of the whole church throughout all ages, there was a degree of separation that occurred between Father and Son. 
Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah prophesies that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living in his death. Now imagine with me this morning, after suffering under the wrath of his own father for the sins of the world, after rising victorious from the grave and ascending into heaven, imagine the kind of joy at the reunion of father and son. Imagine what that must have been like. You know, the longer that you know someone and, and the longer that you love someone, the, the, the harder it is to be away from that person. The more you miss them when they're away from you. You know, uh, you go to a wedding, and very often in weddings these days, um, they do a couple's dance where they determine who present has been lo- married the longest, right? So the married couple gets out there, and they're always the first to leave because they've been married for all of about 35 minutes. And then they start asking if you've been married for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. When we meet people who have been married happily for 50 years, 60 years. I've met someone who was married for over 70 years. Our, our jaws drop. We are amazed and astounded. And we say, what's the secret? How, how, did, you, how did you make it this far? We're amazed. And we feel like we can't get in between that. There's something otherworldly, sacred, about a relationship that close being enjoyed for so long. That's nothing compared to the union, the depth of the ocean, of the love between Jesus and his Father. That love is something we can't comprehend. I have a quote here from Michael Reeves, author of Delighting in the Trinity. It's a long quote, but it's going to bless you. Reeves compares those who try to understand what God is like without understanding the Trinity as those who are chasing after God on a bumpy goat path, tumbling this way and that way. And those who understand that God is Trinity, he is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like those pursuing God on a well-lit, well-paved path. Quote, perhaps the best way to appreciate this, the Trinity, is to ask what God was doing before creation. Now, to the followers of the goat path, that is an absurd, impossible question to answer. Their wittiest theologians reply with the put-down, what was God doing before creation? Making hell for those cheeky enough to ask. But on the lane, it is an easy question to answer. Jesus tells us explicitly in John 17, 24, Father, he says, you loved me before the creation of the world, and that is the God revealed by Jesus Christ. Before he created, before he ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. End quote. The joy that caused Jesus to look right at the cross, to say my soul is in agony to the point of death, to bleed drops of blood. What allowed him to do that was the joy of being reunited with his father. That joy allowed him to endure even the agony of the cross. But there's more. There's a second element as well. The second element of Jesus' joy was the joy of triumph over sin. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, after making purifications for sin, 
he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The battle against sin is finished, and Jesus has won. It's over. His work is finished. There's nothing more to be done. There's no more sacrifice to be made. This is the joy of a hard-fought battle that's been won. Growing up, there were a few summers where my dad would pay me to mow the 40-plus acre field behind our house. We'd do the job on a tractor. There's no way you could do that on a push mower. You'd finish and then have to just start back over. But we'd have a big tractor, and still it was a haul. You'd start early on Saturday morning after a big breakfast, and you'd go round and around and around and around that field all day long to the end of the day. And then the next day on Sunday, you'd go to church, come back, you'd keep working, go, go, go. And finally, at the very end, sometime around lunch, the agony of that job could not compare to coming up suddenly on that last tiny little patch of grass and putt-putting the victory. Nothing like it. Y'all, this is the joy of a job well done. Moms, this is the joy of childbirth. This is the joy, students, of hitting submit on a 12-page term paper. Students at Colin, this is the joy of taking communications 2301, giving your speech, and then sitting down. The joy set before you helps you endure that speech. These are all nothing compared to the joy of defeating the greatest enemy that's ever faced us sin, death. Jesus has defeated them. There's joy having accomplished it, raising from the dead, and the job is done. The victory is won. Jesus sits down. But it's not just the joy of victory over sin. Thirdly, it's the joy of leading many captives from the clutches of sin. The third element of Jesus' joy is the joy of being surrounded with praise by all the people for whom he died. Jesus tells us in Luke 15, uh, verse 7, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. We can dare to imagine the joy of the millions upon millions who were gathered in that last day, who have repented of their sins, who have been saved by Jesus, all coming together to praise the Lord. You can dare to imagine that joy. There will be joy experienced by the redeemed for their own redemption, praising God that by God's grace I'm here. There will be joy experienced by the redeemed for the redemption of all the rest of the redeemed, turning to every person next to you and saying, Jesus' blood covered your sins too. We're free. But the greatest joy, I believe, in that day will be felt by Christ, surrounded by all those that he came to die for surrounded by the praises forever of his bride. But there's more. The fourth element of Jesus' joy was the joy of exaltation. Hebrews 12.2 says, He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You should start to be noticing a pattern here. Three times already we've read Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. Jesus has been exalted to the seat of highest honor. It, it, it's the place that no one else is worthy of sitting. And people have tried to sit there before. Satan tried to seat, sit in the, in the seat of honor, and God cast him out of heaven, bound him in chains. At the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, all mankind came together to build a tower up to heaven to be seated in that throne. And God, of course, humiliated them, devastated their unity, and fractured them across the world. 
The disciples, in their own shrewd way, also tried to sit as near to the seat as possible when James and John came close to Jesus and said, Lord, when your kingdom comes, let us sit on your left and your right. Scripture tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that although Jesus deserves that highest throne and though he has been seated there for all eternity, he did not consider it robbery to give it up, to come to earth, to be humbled, and not just humbled to, to be a, earth of, uh, a king of the earth, but to, be a, um, to die as a criminal on a cross. He didn't consider it robbery to be removed from that throne of honor willingly to come and die for his people. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He humbled himself by incarnating as a human, living among us, loving us. And he was obedient to God's will, even to the point of a shameful death on a cross. Now imagine the kind of joy after a lifetime of loneliness, a lifetime of sorrow, a lifetime of shame to rise from the dead. Relationship with the Father restored, to be exalted all the way up to the seat of highest honor, the right hand of God. The joy of Jesus that outweighed the agony of the cross was his heavenly reunion with his Father. Surrounded by the praise of millions, seated in the throne of victory, victorious over sin. Jesus came to die for his own joy. Now that's amazing. That's praiseworthy. And we could end this sermon now and go straight into worshiping the Lord. But where does that leave us? Now that Jesus has entered into his joy, does he just now leave us in our suffering? Is our suffering, is our life on earth just background noise against the thunderous roar of praise that Jesus is experiencing right now in heaven? Well, let's back up for a second. Let's look back at Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. The reason we're told about the joy of Jesus is so that our joy may increase. Jesus came to die for our joy as well. And the amazing thing is, is, is that Jesus shares his joy with us, and we need his joy. Verse 1 begins, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Y'all, we're looking at an Olympics analogy right here. This is going to be really easy for us if you've been watching the Olympic trials, hooting and hollering. A life of faith is a marathon run with Jesus. He is our cheerleader. He is our coach. He's our prize at the end of the race. The text also says, let us lay aside every weight. This is anything that hinders us from running with endurance the race that we've been given. Uh, it's laying aside anything that uh, hinders us. You know, you don't see Olympians setting world records in parkas, blue jeans, or chukka boots. No offense to chukka boot owners out there. No one gets on the track carrying their duffel bag. They don't come on the track uh, wearing their headphones. They come unencumbered completely. Getting rid of the weights that hinder us and our faith run after Jesus is very hard because the very things that hinder us from following Christ comfort us when we're not following Christ. 
It's an act of faith to give those up, to say Jesus is all I need. But not only are we supposed to cast aside every weight that hinders us, but also every sin which clings so closely. The image here is of getting tangled up in something like long weeds or thorny vines. Sin entangles us, and it prevents further progress on our run with Christ. Now, a person without Christ trying to chase after him on their own gets tangled up in sin and gives up. They're trapped in their sin. But the Christian looks to Christ sees that the race is already won, that the fight is already won, and hacks through and keeps running, looking to Jesus. In Scripture, we have an instant replay of Jesus' marathon run. We see every uh, hurdle. We see every bend. We see every trial. We see every victory. This is an instant replay for us to watch and duplicate And he's already won it, and he's waiting for us at the end of our run with open arms cheering for us. If you don't believe me, the biblical language there is that right now Jesus is in heaven interceding for us on our behalf. The context of Hebrews 12 is about looking to the examples of great men and women of faith of past generations and being encouraged to endure your trials in faith. But while these saints trusted God, For a child, for a promised land, a nation of descendants, Jesus endured the cross for the joy of an eternity of exaltation. This joy, Jesus now invites us to share in. For many reasons, our joy doesn't begin when we get in heaven. Our life is sorrowful now, yes, especially in Christ, and we suffer as Christians, and we endure persecution as Christians, but joy doesn't begin in heaven. It has its consummation in heaven. It's at its most powerful in heaven. It's at its most unencumbered in heaven, but joy starts today, this Lord's day, today, right now. Before Jesus died, he promised this, John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I do not think I am out of line in saying that no creature can outdo the creator in joy. Theologians have long suggested that God is the happiest of all beings. He is infinite in his being. His capacity to enjoy his joy is unhindered. It is infinite. He exercises complete control over time and space. He is Lord of all. He is perfect in unhindered community with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No one exceeds God in the amount of joy that he experiences. He is eternally happy. In this life, brothers and sisters, you will be offered lots of happiness from many different sources. You'll be offered happiness from creatures who can give it to you in tiny amounts. You'll hear ads all the time, hey, eat this, you'll feel good. Drink this, you'll feel good. Lose this weight, you'll feel good about yourself. You'll hear people say, hey, date me, I'll make you feel good. Marry me, I'll make you happy. You'll hear your married friends say, you're not happy, have kids, they'll make you happy. Your dog owners will say, you're still not happy, have a pet, they'll make you happy, and you'll feel good about yourself. These kinds of joys are incomplete. They're imperfect. They do not last. Only God has the wisdom 
and resources to understand the depth of human need. And in Jesus, He offers to put His own joy in you. The maximum experience of happiness. Listen, this is for all you in Christ, throughout, outside of Christ, all of you this morning. The maximum experience of happiness that can be felt by a finite creature is offered not to those who can pay for it, but offered to needy sinners who look to Jesus. I want to spend a few minutes talking about the foundation for present Christian joy. Joy that we experience right now, today, July 11th. This isn't the joy we will enjoy someday, but the joy we can experience right now. I want us to see three realities about this joy. First, Jesus invites us to experience this joy. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the master rewards the servant who has been faithful with small things by setting up over more things. And then he says this, Matthew 25, verse 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. As a reward for his faithfulness, this servant is given more work to do. But then the master invites his servant into his joy. Now that the servant has a mutual interest in the things of his master, he's invested his master's money, turned a profit, his master has put him up over many more things. Because he's invested in the things that are important to his master, he gets to enjoy the joy of his master as they turn more and more of a profit. This is worth reiterating. Jesus, uh, joy is a gift that Jesus offers to us. It's in his hand to give, and he gives it to, to, to whom he wants. You can't extort Jesus for joy. You can't wring it from him. You can't drill him for it like you can drill the earth for, for gold or, or gemstones. It's something that Jesus offers. Second, the second foundation for joy is this. Joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Galatians 5, verses 22 through 24, a verse that is familiar to many of us, says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, among many other things, joy. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What do we learn about joy in this verse? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit does in us. The pressure is off, Christian. You don't have to hear from me. Hey, dude, cheer up. It's a reality that's alive in your heart. The Spirit is already working it inside of us. It's a fruit of the Spirit within us. So the third foundation for joy is that joy is a sign of the kingdom of God in our hearts. Romans 14 verse 7 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We studied this passage just a few weeks ago. Some who are weaker in their faith, we learn in Romans 14, may feel a strong conviction to avoid certain foods or avoid certain drinks or observe certain holy days. Some who are strong in their faith realize that they are free in Christ from these kinds of restrictions. Then Paul calls every one of us to the table when he commands us all, weak and strong, to walk in love 
patience and forbearance towards each other on these kinds of issues. And the reason for that, the foundation for that, is the verse we just read. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of outward justification. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of inner renewal leading to obedience, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, the kingdom of God, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven, is a frequent topic in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. When we survey the way that Jesus and the apostles talk about the kingdom, we see that the kingdom of God, in its broadest terms, is anywhere that Jesus is reigning fully. Kingdoms of the earth are often established through violence, through violent overthrow. In fact, just this week, uh, the nation of Haiti is experiencing the, uh, this kind of turmoil as they experience the assassination of one dictatorial president, and they're already under martial law from another one who's declared himself the new president. When a kingdom is established on earth, new laws are set to keep people in line. Earthly kings can enforce outward obedience with laws, with police forces, with armies, with a penal system. But Jesus' kingdom grows quietly, slowly, under the surface. It rarely makes national news. His kingdom grows where no earthly ruler can touch it, the hearts of the redeemed. When the kingdom of darkness gets overthrown in our hearts, Jesus sets up his, earth, oh, his heavenly kingdom by reigning and ruling from the throne of our hearts. The exercise of his will over our hearts, his reign on earth is seen in our righteousness, our peace, our joy. What's the portrait we get from these texts? Joy is a gift that Jesus gives. It's in his hand, and he gives it to do he will. He enforces that joy with love through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's growing as a fruit of the Spirit in your heart if you are in Christ. And it is a sign of the kingdom of God alive in your heart. And it's a promise that better things are coming. Jesus is the wellspring of joy. He's the source. You could dive into that source and, and never find uh, the bottom. He is the wellspring, and his source of joy is endless. But Jesus gives his joy to us through many streams. There are many streams through which Christians can enjoy this joy in Jesus. What are some of the streams of joy that Christians uh, can have in Jesus? There are many, and I just want to discuss five this morning. This will go quickly, and then, and then we'll wrap up this morning. What are the streams of joys that Christian enjoy in Jesus? First, we experience joy in Jesus through assurance, the assurance of our salvation. First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love this verse. I love it because it puts into words what is often so hard to express to people who aren't Christians. Like, 
we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Jesus alone. And people ask, so why do you do good works now? Why not just live it up? Why not just do whatever you want? And, and it's so hard to, to get into their hearts and explain the emotive motivation for living for Christ. It's hard for someone who hasn't experienced grace to understand why you don't keep sinning after you've experienced it. This text gives me words, well, I have never seen Jesus, but I love him. I want to do what makes him happy. And even though I don't see him now, I trust more in the reality of Jesus' resurrection and the reality of his deity than I do in my own doubts, in my own feelings, in my own hesitations to the contrary. I am convinced that Jesus Christ, my God, has saved my soul. And so I am filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. No matter what's going on in the moment, you can at least stop and thank the Lord that nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. There's a song that's frequently heard in our home with this chorus. What blessed assurance I've found in you. I won't be shaken. I will not be moved. How steadfast your strong love is keeping me. I won't be shaken. I will not be moved. What blessed assurance. You City of Light fans would have heard that in your head with an Aussie accent, and that's good. <laughs> the assurance of your salvation is a source, Scripture says, not my words, of inexpressible and glorious joy. This is available to you, Christian. When your joy is at an all-time low, meditate on the strong, steadfast assurance of your salvation in Christ. That assurance is inexpressible, and it is yours to enjoy today. Second stream, there's joy in Christian fellowship. 2 John 1.12, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. I love this verse because John has already written one letter. He's writing a second one. He'll write a third one, and he says, hey, pen and ink is great, but I just can't wait to see you face to face. Praise God for FaceTime. Praise God for Zoom. Praise God for cell phones. Praise God for emails. But this morning, praise God that we get to worship Jesus face to face. What a gift. This is our family, brothers and sisters. This is a place where you can walk into with your joy fractured and trampled on by the ruthless carelessness of the world and leave with your joy mended and complete. It's not because we're perfect. The Lord knows we are not perfect. We're probably weirder than your family reunions with your in-laws. But this is the bride for which Jesus is waiting. This is the flock for which Jesus lays down his life. This is the glorious inheritance that Jesus cannot wait to gather one day in eternity. I mean, if Jesus delights in this church, however imperfect by his help, I find my joy here too. There's joy in Christian fellowship. Third, there's joy in partnership in the gospel. We're going from Christian fellowship to something more specific. Philemon 1 verse 7 
Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now, Philemon is a brother who had partnered with Paul many times before, at least financially, probably in many other ways. And he's by no means perfect. You just have to read that short book to get that portrait. But Paul is not shy to make his joy in his brother a public thing. This letter would have been read publicly to Philemon's church. This is immense joy. There is immense joy in partnership in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to really take advantage of our gospel partner emphasis each month. We pray for this partner on Sundays. We set up their information on, on the walk out in the back. Um, I would really encourage you to get to know these brothers and sisters who are laboring in McKinney, in our hometown. They're laboring across the states. They're laboring across the world. Their information's on our website online. You can always ask our staff for more info about these people, how to pray for them. There is joy in partnering in the gospel with these people. But I would also encourage you to relish the gospel partnership that we have with each other. Right now on Thursdays, we are meeting every Thursday during the summer for corporate prayer. We gather together to pray for the gospel to go forth in our own hearts, in our families, in our town, and across the world. That's gospel partnership through prayer. Brothers and sisters, on the way out, on the, at the connect table in the back, you'll pass a little offering box. Thank God for the generosity of people in this church who sustain a staff, a myriad of expenses, kids' ministry, youth ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, and a host of other experiences, and our gospel partners. Consider how you might increase your own joy by partnering with each other in the gospel even this summer. I've known families who have set aside like one month, uh, one, one month, or excuse me, one night a month to invite one church family into their home and also invite one unbelieving neighbor family in their home to connect their unbelieving neighbors with more Christians. Consider how you can partner with one another in the gospel. And one word there as well, one final word, parents. Consider how you are partnering in the gospel with your spouse right now to seek the salvation for your children. We read these books like adding spice to your love life. If you want to add spice to your love life, try loving your children together, loving them boldly, powerfully in the presence of God together. We are in gospel partner with our spouses. We are in a gospel partnership with one another. And we are in gospel partnership with these people that we are supporting even to the ends of the earth. There is joy found in gospel partnership. Fourth stream, there's joy in Christ's indwelling presence. Speaking of his resurrection, Jesus says this to his disciples. John 16, verses 21 through 22. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This was spoken before the cross, before the agony of Gethsemane. This was spoken before Jesus was taken from his disciples by death. They were separated from him, so there was a season of grief. But Jesus rose from the dead. 
And it's precisely because Jesus has risen from the dead that now all of Jesus' disciples have joy. No one can take it away from you because no one can kill Jesus. He's alive. He's alive forever. Satan tried. Sin did its best. Death thought it had the final word. But Jesus prevailed against all of them. And now, brother and sister in Christ, he is yours. And you belong to him. The risen Christ lives within us through the Holy Spirit. His presence indwells every believer forever. It's not something that's going to go away. It's not something that leaves you in any moment. He is with you always. And so there is joy that no one can take away. And that's very important. Especially as we look at the fifth place where Christians find joy. The fifth stream of joy that Jesus often gives to his people is suffering. Luke 6, 22 through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is suffering through persecution. James chapter 1 broadens this to include any suffering that we endure as Christians. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prepared for the horror of a trial you and I can only imagine. We can only guess at. Brothers and sisters, there are some of you here today who have experienced a horror of a trial that I can only guess at. I I can only wonder at. But Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. He was at the center of the greatest tragedy that has ever befallen humanity. He was the object of the horror, the agony, and the darkness of separation from God and punishment under the wrath of God. Jesus was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. There's no grief that we endure in this life that he doesn't know about and say, yes, I know. And now, through the Spirit, through his sovereign intercession, Jesus enters back into the darkness, back into the pain, back into the agony each time a trial befalls one of his people. He loves to draw near his people. And he especially loves to draw near his people when they hurt. There is a unique, potent, sweet joy that is experienced in the midst of suffering. That is a promise from Christ in Scripture to you. So what do we do with this reality now, brothers and sisters? We rejoice. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's not 12 steps to a better joy life, 20 steps to have more joy. It's not here, do this, you'll have joy, drink this, you'll have joy, eat this, you'll have joy, rejoice. It's a reality alive in your heart today through the work of the Spirit bought by the blood of Christ. You were commanded to be happy in Jesus. We can walk in what's already true. 
You may be here this morning and you hear that command and you're, and you're feeling overwhelmed. Great, another burden to bear. Now, not only am I supposed to be saying no to sin, going to church, reading my Bible, having a prayer life, but I'm supposed to enjoy it? The pressure's off. There's no, hey, cheer up, Christian. Jesus came to die for his joy and yours. Jesus is enjoying his joy infinitely, and he is offering that joy to you. According to John chapter 15, verse 11, this joy is yours in Christ. He has bought it with his blood. He offers it to you to walk in, and no one can take it away from you. These things I have spoken that you may be, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Believer, this joy is yours now. Friend, if if you're in here this morning and you're not believing in Jesus, this joy is being offered to you as well. It's being offered to you in the good news of Jesus. In the Gospels, joy is salvation's closest companion. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Matthew chapter 2. When the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field which a man found and, uh, and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes in and sells all that he has so he can buy that field. There is joy in salvation, joy that you've never experienced before. Happiness in Jesus that is untainted, untouchable, bought by Christ with his blood. If you've never turned from your sins and turned to Jesus, trusting in his life-giving death and his forever-changing resurrection, you've never experienced life-altering, life-changing direction-giving joy. In the parable of the talents, the master invites the faithful servant to enter into the joy of his master. Friend, today, Jesus is calling you to enter into his joy. Will you believe and rejoice? Let's pray. Lord, you have bought joy for us. It's unshakable, it's unchangeable, it's ours right now today. (laughs) And then you've commanded us, rejoice in the Lord always. You repeat it again, I say rejoice. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in the joy that is ours in Jesus. I pray that you would overcome the unbelief in our hearts the sin in our lives, the doubts that plague us. Let us, through your Spirit, throw off every weight that hinders us, throw off every sin that clings so closely in the power of the Spirit, and believe that all we need in this life for our happiness is Jesus. Lord, you have come to die for our joy And we praise you that you are risen from the dead forever. Our lives are yours. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.